following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. You have your copy of the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. It seems like, well, a lifetime ago, I was about 20, and when I was about 20 years old, I used to play basketball a lot, and I would go to this place called the Village Green in a city called Olmstead Falls, and there'd be guys that came from, you know, Cleveland, North Olmstead, where I was from, Olmstead Falls, and just all the areas around the, that city, and there'd be four full courts going with basketball players, and, and with that, there was a lot of basketballs on the court. Now, if, if you wanted to make sure that you walk, went home with the basketball you brought, you needed to have some sort of identifying markers beyond the name Wilson or Spalding, unless that was, in fact, your name, because they all looked the same, and some guy would accidentally walk out with your basketball, and sometimes they would walk out with your basketball on purpose. They'd leave a crummy one behind and walk out with your brand new ball. So you had to put some mark on it, because they all look the same. And so when somebody was walking out, he would say, hey, dude, I think you got my ball. And that was the way to make sure that you knew which ball was yours. Mine had the name Kitnoya on it. And when we think about that, sometimes as Christians, it's important for us to know what are the marks that indicate that someone really belongs to Jesus Christ and who does not. In fact, in, in the book of Acts chapter 15, the question essentially arises how do we know that someone really belongs to God? How do we know that they are saved? And they have this big controversy break out. It appears to be around the question of circumcision, but the root question is really what are the marks that someone truly is a believer in Jesus Christ? In Acts chapter 15, what we're seeing is this. A controversy has been brewing for some time in the church. It began probably around Acts chapter 10, which at this point was 10 years previous to chapter 15. And what had happened was, was this. The apostle Peter, who had been sort of reluctant to reach out to Gentiles, was called directly by God through a dream. He told him, he told him in a dream that there's going to be some Gentiles coming and you need to go to them. He prepared him for this. Be prepared to go with the Gentiles. That's what he was doing. And while he's dreaming and he's, he's getting hungry and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and he said, and they say, hey, we're looking for Peter and it's a bunch of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And Jews and non-Jews didn't really mix. They were like oil and water. And so now the, Peter welcomes him in and because God has been preparing him. And the next day he goes to, to Gentile country and there he shares the gospel with Cornelius, a Gentile. And he and a bunch of other non-Jewish people get saved and this is sort of a controversy even then begins to, to break out because they're like, hey, you went and you had fellowship and you spent the night at the house of a Gentile. That means you are now dirty. And so there's kind of a problem going on, but it's been brewing for years. And now the Apostle Paul has gone out on a missionary journey specifically to Gentiles and he has preached the gospel. And guess what? They are converting to faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so now with this tension in the background, and now there's a lot of Gentiles, more disciples, more problems, and now a bunch of people are upset, and so they, they send people from, you know, people go from Judea to Antioch to say, you got to get circumcised. And a controversy breaks out. Because the message that Paul has been preaching is the message that we still hold to today, and that is this. The gospel is that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from the works of the law. But some of the Jewish Christians are saying, Paul, you've gone too far. And so a controversy breaks out. Let's pick it up in chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose and stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you uh, for how it speaks to us and how it ministers to us. I pray that today we would leave with not only with an understanding of what the true mark of a believer is, but also if there's anyone here who does not have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, telling them that they are a child of God, that they would leave here with full assurance of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this controversy erupted in Antioch because people had traveled from Judea to demand that the Gentiles be circumcised, which was a shorthand way of saying, obey the whole law of Moses. And then by verse 5, he's saying, you must obey the whole law. You must become Jewish. You must bear the marks of being an Israelite. That is essentially what they're saying. And if you don't do these things, why you cannot be saved. And so we wonder, the question then is, is, what are the marks that someone truly is a believer in Jesus Christ? How do we know that they are saved? Used to be from time to time I would see sweatshirts that said something like property of Harvard University and you'd buy those and I guess it meant that Harvard owned you. But that, that's kind of uh, the idea here is how do we know that someone belongs to God? Because they were going around saying you needed to become Jewish. Now, the answer that the church ultimately will state is this. You don't have to become Jewish to be saved. But the question you would think 2,000 years later, there were no Christians today wrestling with this question of becoming more like an Israelite than, than you are now. In fact, about eight years ago when we were in Ellington, there's a small town. It's hard for you to envision unless you went there. There's a coffee shop there, and there's not a coffee shop around for a long, long way. And some time, from time to time, some interesting guests would show up at this coffee shop, one of which was a, a Christian. I'm sure he was a believer, 
But when he, he was talking to Christina, the, the, one of our church members in Ellington, uh, who owned the shop, he, he, she was offering bacon and, and ham, and he's a, she's a Christian. He said, well, I don't eat that stuff, because we're Christians, we don't eat bacon at all. We're not supposed to. And she's, she doesn't understand this. What do you mean we don't eat bacon? Because she's never heard this before. And so she says, he says, well, look, it's in the Old Testament. We can't eat pork. And here you are, a Christian, selling bacon and ham. And so she comes to me like, what, 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 do, we, what do I say to this? And so I pointed her to the Jerusalem Council because this actually was dealing with the question, what must a Christian do? Are there certain things that we need to not do, certain religious practices from ancient Israel that we need to follow today? Now, these are not moral principles. The moral principles like don't lie, don't steal, Paul was teaching these things. The issue at hand was they're not becoming kosher. They're not getting circumcised. And so as far as these Jewish believers were concerned, the Gentiles really weren't saved at all. And this was a controversy because what Paul is preaching, which we preach today, is that the marks of being a Christian, to be a Christian, is not through works of the law, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so we teach this. You know, we have live options today, though. What, the marks of what a believer is. Well, we, baptism. Is baptism the mark that someone's a believer? Some say, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I would say, yeah, absolutely. You should get baptized if you are a believer. We don't baptize non-believers at Calvary. Because you've got to be a believer first before you get baptized. But there are, I hate to tell you, there are people who have sometimes been baptized and maybe weren't really believers. And so what we do on the outside, ultimately, while it can fit with what the church is commanded to do, does not prove that you have the, you've been saved. It is an evidence that you're saved, but the ultimate proof is actually harder to discover because it's actually on the inside of a person. From time to time, over the years, not so much since I've been at Calvary, but phone calls would come into the church office about a person who had been, uh, well, maybe a member of our church, and they had moved on to two and a half hours away. Well, they'd passed away. And so now the family is trying to scramble. Is there evidence? Are they a member of a church somewhere? Because if they're a member of the church through baptism, why? Then we know that they're saved. But what that kind of told me secretly was... There was no evidence from their life that they were a believer in Jesus Christ. But still, that isn't... Church membership matters, baptism matters, but those aren't actually the proofs that someone is a believer in Jesus Christ. I've been around church a while. Are you aware that sometimes people fake stuff? Now, if you're baptized, I'm not saying you're not really a believer. That's not my position to know that. But it seems like what they're looking for is something a little bit deeper that only God can do, something that man cannot do. Because most things that God does, then Satan and man tries to copy and forge. And, and so as Christians, while we believe in doing the right things, ultimately the belief doing the right things is not what saves us. Faith in Jesus Christ is what saves us. So then the question returns, what then is the mark, the proof, that someone is indeed a, a child of God, that they belong to Jesus Christ. Well, receiving the Holy Spirit is in fact the proof that someone is a Christian. Look at verse 6 through 11. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, something deeper, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Now we need to pause and not go any further. We need to camp out on this for a second. He's reminding them, hey, look, you guys, remember when you guys got mad at me because I went and hung out with the Gentiles and preached the gospel to them? You remember when you got upset about that? Well, when I did that, God did the same thing for us, that, or for them, that he did to us. Here's what he's talking about. Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, I'm going back to heaven, but uh, go ahead and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of my Father. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And you will receive power to bear witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, now they're going to the, starting to go to the ends of the earth, and it's a little uncomfortable. And then in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and they speak in tongues. Now, yesterday, we had a really cool little Bible study, and my son Kenny was in there, and he goes, Well, Dad, what is speaking in tongues? I'm like, Well, that's a great question. Here's what I think the Bible says. I think what the Bible is teaching there is that when someone speaks in tongues, what that was was God doing a miracle, enabling them to speak a language that they had never learned before. And so now they've got all these people in Jerusalem. They start speaking in tongues. They're like, hey, how is it that all these uneducated men are speaking of the glories of God, bearing witness in our languages? Acts 2. Then you go to Acts chapter 8. It happens again in Samaria. The Samaritans were viewed as like, mutts, half Jew, half Gentiles. And they receive the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues. Now, Cornelius, the same thing happens. And what Paul's point is this. Since God gave them the Holy Spirit and proved it by giving them a miraculous sign, who are we to stand in the way of what God is doing? The proof was what God was doing on the inside. Verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? God gave them the Holy Spirit without requiring them to become Israelites first. So why are you then trying to go back and saying, well, God's good with you, but now you must also become a little gooder with God by becoming an Israelite. Start obeying the law. And he's saying, we couldn't obey it. In the Old Testament law, there's all these rules that are good and right, but what didn't come with it was the power to obey the law. Why are you demanding that they've placed themselves under this burden that we ourselves nor our fathers were able to bear. Verse 11, But we believe, and Peter reverses the order, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus rather than through the law, just as they will. He is saying plainly, look, God demonstrated that they are in fact accepted by Him. God showed what was that they were true believers Truly his people when he gave them the Holy Spirit. And then he proved it to us by this miraculous sign. And since that God has done that, why are you putting extra burdens on these people? God gives the Holy Spirit 
to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. You can just listen. You can check it out later. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Listen to how Paul describes this. <clears throat> in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. If you've ever wondered why Baptists preached that a person can't lose their salvation, that's one of those verses that is why. Because what it's saying is we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is something that God did internally to us, not of man, so that anyone can boast. And what he's saying is when you believe, heard, you believed, and you received. And thus you were saved. And so now as Christians, sometimes we talk about the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit. My question for you this morning is, do you have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit? What would that look like? Well, I'm just a little test. Are you comfortable or uncomfortable with sin? Are you comfortable or uncomfortable with, let me restate that, with your own sin? In other words, when, when you sin, does it bother you at all? Here's the thing. If the Holy Spirit's res- dwelling inside of you, convict, whose ministry has been described by Jesus as convicting the world of sin and about righteousness and about Jesus, if you can live in sin and, and have... And, can you be confident that you have the Holy Spirit in you and if you're living comfortably with sin? If you have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, when you are sinning, eventually alarm bells are going to go off. This is not the way of God. Do you have that internal witness? Paul says, describe the Holy Spirit, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's a lot of things that we can do. Listen, I've grown up basically in church. I can't remember a time that I wasn't in church. There was a few years, but that doesn't prove that I really am a child of God. The proof is deeper than external conformity. Sometimes we people conform to the rules because sometimes it's just easier to go along to get along. What he is describing here, what the Bible describes is when you are saved, God writes your, His name on your heart. The Apostle Paul in, in Romans 2, 28 and 29 says that we have a different kind of circumcision. It's not external. It's on the heart written by the Holy Spirit. Do all the exter- do external things matter? Absolutely. In case you're questioning, wait, is he saying baptism doesn't matter? No, baptism matters. If someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ, but they won't get baptized, I kind of scratch my head and say, what do you mean he's your Lord and Savior? You're disobeying on something that's easy enough to do. I'm not saying external things don't matter. What I'm saying is some people fake them for a time. And the proof, the real proof that someone belongs to God is that the Holy Spirit has done something much deeper in the heart. And the Scripture supports that. 
Is there fruit from your life? In other words, is there being, is there some transformation that's taken place? Have you set aside sin or are you finding places to serve and use your spiritual gift? So Paul, uh, Peter's point is, look, God did this for them. They've received the Holy Spirit and we have seen a, we've seen a miracle. And so who are we to add extra burdens on them? But now Jude, I'm sorry, James, also known historically as James the Just, Jesus' half-brother, he's going to stand up and speak now too. And it appears by this point in time, he's essentially become the most prominent leader in the Jerusalem church because he has the final say. Actually, the Holy Spirit does, but he's the last human to speak. God promised to save a people for himself, verse 12 to 21. And all the assembly, the, all the assembly fell silent. The debate was over. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, even though they had not become Israelites. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Pause for a second. Simeon is Simon. You know that my name, Daniel, is actually... That's like the formal way of referring to me as Daniel. The last time I can recall being called Daniel is when... Uh, either when I got married or when I got my, my diploma, when I graduated. Everyone just calls me Dan. Mom called me Danny. Simeon is like the formal version of Simon. And Jesus gave him a nickname that stuck called Peter. Okay? Changes changes whole whole direction of his life. All right, so Simeon uh, has related. <clears throat> excuse me, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as as it is written, Amos nine and eleven and twelve is who he, what he's referencing here. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Pause. The house of David, basically by the time Jesus is born, Joseph is the last in the line. It's fallen over. It's like a house that's been knocked down. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So in other words, if the Gentiles want to become a little more Jewish, they can go to the synagogues and hear Moses preach. But as it would turn out, God didn't see fit to save Gentiles through the pre preaching of the law of Moses. And more, his point is this. James was giving scriptural support for accepting Gentiles into God's fellowship without adding extra rules. In fact, what he is saying is that what what Peter's reported, and now what, what Paul and Barnabas have reported about God's work amongst the Gentiles, it's supported by Scripture because he points to Amos 9, 11, and 12 where it says that God is going to rebuild the house 
of David. He's going to take the initiative. He himself will take the initiative to reach lost people, to rebuild the house of David. And and, and so the idea here is that James gave scriptural support for accepting Gentiles into the fellowship of the church. But he does something interesting there. Well, it shows up again. He repeats it a little bit later. They're silent. They confirm that this is what's going on. So then they have to, how do we get the word out to the Gentile churches? And so they write a letter. And the Jerusalem church send a letter with representatives to the churches in Antioch. Pick it up in verse 22 to 31. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, also known as Silvanus in the New Testament, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. By the way, calling them brothers was not a small matter. Greetings. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Translation, they acted on their own accord. We did not send them. Verse 25. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. In other words, what our letter says, they'll fill you in more on the details. Verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Where it says good to the Holy Spirit, he's telling you it's an inspired statement from God. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they sent them off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So what's going on here? This is actually a very complicated chapter, and it's a critical one. Here's what's going on, just to follow what's going on. Number one, they have already established that we are saved by grace through faith, number one. Number two, the internal work of the Holy Spirit is the actual proof that someone is saved. Therefore, we will not require them to become a little more Jewish, a little more like an Israelite. But what are they doing? Because they've got these commands here about abstaining from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled. Here's what's going on. For their entire history of Israel, they had been commanded, don't eat food with blood in it. That actually predates Israel all the way to Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, it's saying don't eat animals while they're still alive. You say, well, that's gross. Well, people did and still do that. Yeah, you guys, hey, 
It's in the Bible, and it is happening in human history. Still happens, as far as I know. Don't do that. Number two, don't eat animal. Don't eat animals that have been strangled. Why? Because their lifeblood's still in them, or their blood's still in them. And so the Jews are like, "Yeah, that stuff is gross, and it makes us ceremonially unclean. We can't come near God." And Paul, what the, what they are telling them is, "Hey, we're not asking the Jews to become less Jewish, but we are asking you to do this. We're not asking you to become Jewish, but avoid the things that make fellowship impossible." What they are doing is promoting the unity of the church by saying, look, this stuff isn't going to make you saved, but it will help promote the unity of the church. Gentiles, please don't eat the food that's offered to idols. Don't eat the meat that's strangled because it still has the blood in it. Your Jewish brothers are repulsed by this. And by the way, they've got Old Testament support for that view. And then the part about sexual immorality, here's the thing. Gentiles were notorious for their sexual immorality. The Jews were notorious for their sexual purity. So what they're, so basically what they're saying is, Paul's already told you this, but just in case you missed it, don't be sexually immoral. If you do these things, you'll be doing a great job as a Christian. That's all they're asking. They're, some people might ask, and the question should be asked, what about the things about thou shalt not steal and lie? They were already being taught this. The question was, how Jewish should they become? Complicated section of Scripture, but it is vital. And so these four commands were given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to promote the unity of the church. Do we have, is there any modern extension of this? Well, I was thinking about this this morning. The first time in my life I ever taught a college and career class, I was, it was kind of a bonehead back then, but I, I came up with something pretty good, actually, from the Scripture. Because what it says is, uh, don't, don't let your freedom in Christ be a stumbling block to other people. And so I get together with these college guys and gals, and my friend Brett's in a heavy metal band, and he's a you know, Christian band. And we we're also at a church where it was like believed if you had a drum, that was the devil's instrument. So we have a little cultural difference here. This was my, ready for my simple statement. I said, guys... Pastor Bunny and Miss Sue, they don't know the difference between the music we like and Ozzy Osbourne. And he's a guy that bites heads, well, on stage anyway, probably fake, but he was, he was biting heads off, of, heads off of bats. And they don't know the difference, so why don't we just not shove it in their face so we can get along? And they're like, all right, cool. That's a modern extension. In other words, don't... You have freedom in Christ to enjoy bacon, pork chop, and heavy metal as long as it's not teaching you something that's against God. But don't make it be a stumbling block to another brother or sister in Christ because your freedom to enjoy stuff is not more important than the unity of your church. That's essentially the point that they were making. The gospel is intact. The unity of the church is intact. And we have an applicable principle continuing to this day. But catch this. Receiving the inner marking of the Holy Spirit is the proof that someone is saved. It's by the Holy Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. It is by the work of the Holy Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. It is by the work of the Holy Spirit 
that we are transformed. And so my question to you this morning is, do you have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit? I'm not asking you, have you grown up in church? I actually love hearing stories of people who did not grow up in church, coming, getting saved later in life. But maybe you're like me and Chrissy. I can't remember a time when we weren't in church. So I'm not asking you that. I am asking you, in your inner man, your inner woman, is there evidence? Do you feel, do you recognize that the work of the Holy Spirit is active in you? That God really is your Father? That Jesus really is your Savior and your Lord? And you bow the knee to Him because He is the one who's in charge. Are you comfortable with sin or not? If you are comfortable with sin, it might mean that the Holy Spirit is not in you speaking to you. Because for the person who's really a child of God, living in sin is not livable. Not for long. Someone well said that the most miserable person is not the atheist, but the Christian who is living like they don't know God. I've been there. But even as I was doing it, there was always this voice of God saying, this is not what you are supposed to be doing. Do you have that inner voice of the Holy Spirit? How do you receive it? Holy Spirit, Paul tells us that when we hear the gospel, which is not only that Jesus is Savior, but He's Lord, and you repent, turn from sins to Jesus in faith, and He's the Lord and not you receive the Holy Spirit. This morning as Chad and the praise team come for one final song, if you would like to call on Jesus for salvation and surrender to Him and receive the Holy Spirit, I invite you to make your way to the front and help you call on Jesus for salvation. He will hear you and He will save you and He will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Please stand for our song of invitation. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.